Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Our guest today on the Beeson Podcast is really not a guest. She is the producer of the Beeson Podcast. Each week when you listen in to the interviews and the lectures and the various sermons that we do here, they're all produced by Betsy Childs. But today, Betsy's in a different seat. She's across the table from me with a microphone in front of her face, and we're going to have an interview, a discussion with Betsy Childs about the whole question of the sanctity of human life. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Betsy, and then we'll just get right into our conversation. Betsy Childs is a native of Birmingham. She attended Briarwood Christian School, and then she went off and did a degree at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and worked for a while, for a number of years, as associate writer for the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries based in Atlanta. And now she is web and publications editor for Beeson Divinity School, and it's in that capacity that she produces each week the Beeson Podcast. But I have another reason for talking to Betsy, and that is her deep and significant involvement in the cause for sanctity of human life, her active involvement, uh, protesting against the wanton taking of unborn human life. So, Betsy, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you so much, Dr. George. Now, uh, let me begin just by asking you how you came to care so much about pro-life causes and get involved uh, not just in a theoretical way, but as an activist against the wanton destruction of preborn children. Well, I would always say that I was pro-life, but I didn't always care about this issue. Um, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents opposed abortion, and in the 80s, they took part in some Operation Rescue efforts and stuff like that. I remember going to a March for Life and things like that and believed in the pro-life cause, but for years felt kind of bad that I really wasn't doing anything, and it was hard to summon up uh, the passion to get involved. And that really changed for me when I moved back to Birmingham. I moved into an urban neighborhood, and I live one block away from Planned Parenthood. And knowing how close this abortion clinic was really got me thinking more about it. And and truly the image that haunted me was the thought of um, the people in Germany that lived in the vicinity of a concentration camp. And, you know, there's lots of debate about how much did the ordinary German person know? Um, Did they know what was going on? Did they not know what was going on? I think in hindsight, we can all agree they should have known what was going on. Um, So living so close to Planned Parenthood, I thought, I don't someday want to tell my children or grandchildren that I was living this close to a place where innocent lives were being taken and I didn't do anything. Even if I can't end abortion myself, I want to somehow protest that. So um, I got involved in a a national movement called 40 Days for Life. And um, it here in Birmingham, it actually takes place right in front of the Planned Parenthood that's by my house. And it's a peaceful, prayerful vigil. It happens for 40 days in the fall and then 40 days in the spring. Why the 40 days? 
I think they picked 40 days just because it's a significant biblical number. Jesus prayed for 40 days in the wilderness. There's 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites. It would be great if people were praying in front of our abortion clinic 365 days out of the year. But the idea with 40 days for life is that for the daytime hours, there will be someone in front of that clinic. And it's very effective as far as reducing the number of abortions, just having people out there praying. Sometimes women don't want to go in, even without someone speaking to them, they have somebody there they can approach for help. So I've been involved in that for several years now. Because I work full time, I'm usually not out there while abortions are taking place. But I even go on the weekends and pray. And there there are days that I've gone where abortions have been happening and I've been able to talk to the women. I'd be interested to know when you're there and you're praying, what are you praying for? What prayers are you offering? I pray all sorts of different things. I pray on a global national scope that God would end abortion, that God would cause other Christians to care more about the issue that God would raise. Catholics have been really good at being at the forefront of this, that God would raise up more Protestants to get involved. I pray for the women and the people who work in the clinic, that God would change their mind, that he would convict them. Honestly, I sometimes pray for things like that their air conditioner would shut down in the clinic, all the different things that make it work, that God would would thwart the even mechanics of the building if that will save lives. And even along with that, not just save the lives of the baby, but save the women that are going to hurt for the rest of their lives after they do this. What do you say to people who say uh, to you and to others in the pro-life movement, all, all this concern about pre-born babies, babies in the womb, what about babies that are here in the world that are struggling and suffering in poverty and disease? Uh, why aren't you concerned about them just as much as those that are still waiting to be born? I am concerned about them, and I think we, the church, should be raising up to care for the impoverished and to provide education, and I don't see those as mutually exclusive at all. It's a holistic gospel, isn't it? Yes. And we're concerned with the whole person from the moment of conception until natural death. Yes. And for me, a big part of my concern and the thing that has gotten me more passionate about this issue is concern for the women who are having the abortions. Those are the women who have been left without husbands or fathers and don't feel like they can provide for their children. And I don't think that just because they're in an impoverished situation that they should feel like their only choice is to kill their baby. You know, one of the, I guess, horrible, it's a myth, it's, it's something that isn't true, but it's, it's perpetrated a lot, is to say that abortion really is a matter of women's health and women's betterment. And that if you, you're not able to pay for a baby as upbringing, then, you know, get rid of the baby. Speak to that issue about what abortion, we know what abortion does to the babies who lose their life. What does abortion do to the mothers? I think you're exactly right. Even though it's been framed as a matter of giving women choices, it's really taken away some options for them. There are very few women who would choose to kill their babies if they thought someone was going to provide for them, help them raise that child. But with abortion as an option, women now feel like it's solely on their shoulders. If they can't provide for their child, the responsible thing to do is to not have that child, rather than feel like whoever the baby's father is is going to marry them, or their parents will encourage them to live with them and raise them. You know, there used to be more social support. There, there was always a lot of shame. I'm, I'm not denying that. But there used to be more social support for single mothers because it wasn't considered their choice 
in the same way that it is if they choose not to have an abortion. You know, one of our professors, my colleague here at Beeson Divinity School is Dr. Patricia Outlaw. She's also a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And she talks about the the role, particularly in the African-American church, when a young woman is found with child, without support, without a husband, that the church comes around that person and supports them, prays for them, provides physical help and and sustenance for them in that very difficult time. And it says to me, that's, that's a good model for, for all Christians, that we do lend uh, support and help and encouragement, not just to don't have an abortion, right. but also how you can cope with the reality that is in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's been great to see surge in interest in adoptions in the evangelical and Christian world. Um, I think that's wonderful. I think we also need to see more foster parenting. It's interesting it's hard to know how to support women that don't choose to give up their babies for adoption, but I think we need to find more ways to do that. I had a conversation with a girl. It just really, it just makes me hurt to think about it, but she um, felt like she already had two children. She felt like she couldn't raise another one. I talked to her about the possibility of adoption, and she said, I could never do that. You know, which it seems like such a strange double standard to me that she could kill the child, but she thinks she couldn't give it up for adoption. But for the women who don't choose adoption, we need to find ways to care for them and provide for them. And um, if in our lifetimes we ever see the end of abortion, and I pray that we do, the church needs to be prepared for that. And we also need to prepare to support women. Right now, single mothers, the church views their choice not to have an abortion as a heroic decision. If someday they don't have that legal option to have abortion, and I pray that option's taken away, we need to still support them, even if we don't view them as heroes in the same way. When you're there uh, at this abortion facility and you're praying, do you ever have any contact with uh, the mothers who are about uh, to go through the abortion process or with the people who are inside actually running the facility? Do you ever have any uh, connection with them or not? Yes. And the different people who come, it's sort of your choice how much you want to interact because it does involve calling out to them. There's, there's, We're not allowed in the parking lot of the facility. So we talk to the people who work there and also to the women going inside. It's interesting. Planned Parenthood here in Birmingham will not allow their patients to bring in their purses or their cell phones. So, so if a woman goes in the clinic, you always see her come back out, put her purse in the trunk and her cell phone in there because they're so afraid of someone recording something or taking pictures. But what, what they unwittingly do is give us a second opportunity to talk to say, it's not too late to change your mind. One thing that we do, there's a, uh, crisis pregnancy center in Birmingham called Her Choice. They have free ultrasounds. So we tell the women, here's a coupon for a free ultrasound. Go see the child, you know, make an informed choice. So we we do interact with them. We we talk to the people who work there. They're generally hostile or will ignore us. But we try to hopefully smile at them. And and if they do ever want to get a different job, I think they know that we are willing to help them with that if they want to get out of the abortion industry. Have you ever been accused of harassment, that you're harassing yes. the, the clinic or the, the people who are yes. going there? Yes, that's a frequent accusation. I think there are times when it can be a justified accusation against activists in front of an abortion clinic, but a lot is called harassment that's not harassment. During 40 Days for Life, sometimes Planned Parenthood will hire an off-duty police officer to come. You know, we're no threat to the women at all, but they sort of like to portray pro-life people as a, 
a threat as a hostile group. Now, while we're talking about threat, you know that, uh, of course, there's been much uh, publicity about certain incidents in which violence has been actually perpetrated against abortion clinics, including one here in Birmingham. Talk a little bit about that. How would a Christian regard that, and what should be the attitude of those that particularly are pro-life when it comes to the execution of violence in the name of Christ, in the name of life? I can understand why someone who gets deeply involved in the pro-life movement would have anger and would feel like they're preventing more deaths by acts of violence, but I'm wholeheartedly against that. And I think people need to understand how much damage it does to the cause of life in this country whenever there's an act of violence in the name of life. If you look back on the change that we've seen in the past in our country, for example, the civil rights movement, it was far more effective because it was nonviolent. And I think the more the pro-life movement can show that we are really concerned, not just about the baby, but about the women. And we're concerned about holiness and a culture of life in general, rather than just ending this one industry, I think the more effective we'll be. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, the right word for what you and others are doing would be a witness. You're bearing witness by your presence and also by your prayers and by your reaching out in various ways to those that are caught in the, the horrible yes. web of the abortion industry. Exactly. Now, you've mentioned several times Planned Parenthood. That's probably one of the best-known names, brand names in America today. Just recently, the President of the United States attended a Planned Parenthood gathering, and at the end of his remarks, he said to them, God bless you. Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, Betsy, if uh, the President of the United States and all of our uh, officials and leaders and senators, instead of touting Planned Parenthood uh, and, and the atrocious business that they support, would uh, single out crisis pregnancy centers where lives are being saved and babies are being rescued and say, this is a good thing. God bless you. Yes. And I think um, in the years that abortion has been legal, we've seen a wonderful network of crisis pregnancy centers grow up, and they are really effective at what they do. I think they have shown that we are willing to step up and care for mother and baby and provide for their material needs as well as their spiritual needs. And I would love to see more recognition for that. Yeah. So it's not just that we're against something. We are against something that's evil and life-destructive. But we're not just against abortion. We also are for the women and especially the children who are caught in this uh, horrible situation. We want to reach out in Jesus' name and help and offer encouragement and support. That's, I think, the, the real message of the pro-life movement today. Yes. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about national trends and how you see things happening. I know in, in January there is the March for Life in Washington. And uh, this past January there were more than 500,000, more than half a million people who gathered to uphold the sacredness of human life on the National Mall in Washington. It happens every year. Many, many of them were people just like you. They were young. They were passionate. They were intelligent. Talk about particularly the gender and the generation issue when it comes to uh, the whole pro-life movement today. Mm -hmm. 
I think for people of my generation, many of them have a distaste for abortion, but we had a reluctance to get involved because there's a general wariness of anything that's seen as partisan politics. And because by and large, it's been Republicans who have opposed abortion, it's been seen as a Republican issue. And that's kept a lot of people from speaking out or taking the label pro-life, or they may say I'm pro-life, but it doesn't affect how I vote. I would like to see that change. I would love to see more Democrats speak out on behalf of life. And we have seen that in some rare cases. I think there's also a general reluctance to be associated with radicals. You think of people who have committed acts of violence or even it's been hard for me to stand in front of a clinic with people who I don't agree with the way they're going about their protest or I don't agree with all of their theology. But as I prayed about that and thought about that desire not to be associated with something that seems like fringe, I thought about the abolition movement in this Mm -hmm. country. And there was a lot of radicals involved with that. There was also people who we would not be able to hire to teach at Beeson Divinity School, you know, people who would have been theologically liberal. But if I was living during that time period, I really hope I would have supported the cause of abolition. And I would not have wanted to be associating with people I disagreed with to keep me from supporting that. And I feel the same way about the abortion issue. I want to be out there with the radicals, with the people who have come from a different theological community than I do, all working together on this. And I think one final thing that can be a deterrent to younger people getting involved, that I I say this for the people who are listening who are involved in the pro-life movement, is the use of inflammatory language, I think, is a real turnoff to younger people. Mm -hmm. Even if the language is true, whether it's talking about abortion mills or abortuaries, some of these, these terms are very common among the pro-life activist community, but it's viewed as something that shuts down the conversation. So I think younger people would much rather use language that keeps people open-minded longer. I'm not saying that we have to call it a fetus. We can call it a baby, but it's it's important to me to use language that keeps the conversation going with someone who is pro-choice. And I think that's something that the older people who've been in the trenches for years and years, who I greatly admire and respect, that they would draw more younger activists if they toned down some of the language that they use. Now, we can all hope and pray that uh, the horrible decision of the Supreme Court in 1973, known as Roe v. Wade, will uh, someday be overturned. I think that's a possibility, and we shouldn't give hope or keep stop praying for that. But in the meantime, uh, the whole situation of abortion in terms of its legal status uh, is being uh, – uh, you might say, uh, 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 what's the right word here? Not attacked. It is being addressed in another way, and that is through various state legislatures and governors who are signing bills into law. Uh, talk a little bit about what you see happening at the legislative end of how maybe Roe v. Wade is being chipped away at. Yes, I think it is. And as as much as I would like to see it overturned, I'm very pleased with an incremental approach. Just here in Alabama recently, we passed the Women's Health and Safety Act, and it's it's not anything extraordinary. It includes provisions such that doctors performing abortions in Alabama have to have admitting privileges to local hospitals so that if something goes wrong, if their patient won't stop bleeding, they can admit them to the hospital. The doors have to be wide enough to get a stretcher through. It's very reasonable things. You would never go to an oral surgeon here in Alabama who you couldn't fit a stretcher into his doorway if you needed to. You know, that would just be a strange thing for us to think that that was okay not to have. So 
this law and others like it are forcing abortion clinics to basically get up to code the way that all of our other health facilities are. And I think when they object to them, it shows that they're really not that interested in women's health. They're more interested in profit. And if these things are expensive, they don't want to do that. But we're seeing several states have lowered the legal age for abortion for the age of the baby. I think that is very appropriate. I think the atrocities we've seen with the Gosnell case has made a lot of people step back and say there really is no difference between a baby about to be delivered and a baby who has been delivered. I think the more we recognize that, hopefully, the more the legal limit for abortion will get restricted. I know you're very active in your own local congregation. You're a Christian and deeply committed to the the life of faith. Talk a little bit about churches, maybe your church in particular, but churches in general. How how can they be engaged? It's not just individual Christians, but communities of faith. The 40 Days for Life campaign is a really good way for churches to get involved. They can sign up for a whole day to cover the clinic in prayer. They also can do, during one of the 40 Days for Life, I just had a daily email. Anyone who wanted to receive it could get that reminder to pray for abortion, and I picked a different thing to pray each day. Getting involved in crisis pregnancy centers is a great way for churches to get involved. And also providing support and counsel for women who have had an an abortion and regret it. There's larger churches can have support groups there. They can support ministries like Rachel's Vineyard that have retreats for women who are recovering from abortion, help them heal from that. But I think it's something pastors should certainly preach on and preach against abortion and preach about it in a compassionate way where they recognize there's probably women in their congregation who have had abortions and they need to help them to get to a place of repentance and forgiveness where they they recognize God's grace is there for them. So abortion is certainly a legal and political and moral and social problem, but we know it's also maybe uh, in its deepest dimensions a spiritual problem. Definitely. And so prayer is not just something we say we want to do and do it in a perfunctory way, but we, we are called to pray for this issue and other many other issues, of course, that crowd in around us. We need the Lord's help and the Lord's intervention. So, uh, Betsy, uh, could I ask you to close our conversation just by offering a prayer for those that uh, are caught in the terrible vice of the abortion industry? God would intervene in their life and save their children and for Christians to really care and get involved with this issue. Would you do that? I'll be glad to. Heavenly Father, we ask, first of all, that you would end the sin of abortion. We all take some responsibility for this, Lord, as a communal sin, and we pray that you would bring repentance as a nation for this. We pray for women who are pregnant and don't know what to do, Lord. We pray that they would be reached with a message of hope and that they would be emboldened to give life to their children. Lord, we pray that Christians would become better at providing for these women and helping them not to feel shame, but to receive the grace of God that has been poured out in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would raise up congregations, raise up leaders, raise up young people to speak out against abortion and to change the, the law of our land, Lord. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Betsy Childs. She is the web and publications editor for Beeson Divinity School and the producer of the Beeson Podcast. Thank you, Betsy, for this conversation. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.